Well, you might be wondering, what is with the rose stole today? Right? Aren't we in Lent? Those of you that have been around a few years know that this Sunday in Lent is also known as uh, Mothering Sunday or Rose Sunday, usually because it falls very close to the Annunciation of our Lord. And it's kind of like the Lenten seventh inning stretch. You know, we've been hard at it for this first, these first weeks of Lent. And here we are now at Rose Sunday, and, and Lent is more over than is left. And so it's a lighter day. As we look at the text today, I want to begin with a famous phrase that you may, you probably know. It's the phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. Have you heard that phrase before? I don't think it's as common as it used to be, but I think you still hear it once in a while. There but for the grace of God go I. And it's usually referring to some poor soul who's done something wrong. And it's an admission of humility you know, when the person says it, says it, right? That could be me, we might also say. In fact, it's attributed to at least one person, the mid-16th century man by the name of John Bradford. Now, John Bradford was a deacon that was ordained right around the time of the English Reformation. And John Bradford went around and preached the gospel unceasingly, better than most priests, And because of that, um, he ended up actually being executed by Bloody Mary when the monarchy became Roman Catholic again, briefly. And that story is one worth looking up, dear friends. But he's credited with saying, first, there but for the grace of God, go I. A pious martyr. And he said it, it said, in the context of watching criminals before he was imprisoned, going to their execution. He knew that the same evil principles were in his own heart that were in those criminals and had, had brought them to their shameful end. As we continue our Lenten series today, we see the story of two great sinners in the Old Testament, in the Gospel passages, and we see St. Paul's commentary on it all in the reading from Ephesians. One great sinner was a king. The other, the woman caught in the very act of adultery. And both are saved by grace and grace alone. Today, as we look at that, we're looking at three commandments in the light of those stories, primarily dealing with the story of King David and Bathsheba. We look at the sixth commandment, the seventh commandment, and then we jump to the tenth commandment. As we look at these three, we see that all three of those commandments are linked together in the story that we're about to hear, or that we have heard, actually, from Jesse. But a quick review. What are the sixth, the seventh, and the tenth commandments? We prayed them at the beginning of the service, but to refresh us, the sixth commandment is... You didn't know there was going to be a pop quiz, did you? What's, what's number six? Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt do no murder, do no murder as the old prayer book says. The seventh, you shall not commit adultery. 
the eighth, the tenth rather, you shall not covet. In the passage from 2 Samuel chapter 11, we get some insight into King David of Israel and what's going on as this incident happens in his life and as he commits and breaks all three of these commandments. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. Look at it with me. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down. Notice, friends, that this is the culmination of the situation. And what's going on where King David is not at the front as king? Did you notice in the scripture, it underlines this for us, if we pay attention, with the first verse, which we can jump back to. In the spring of the year, when the kings go out to battle. Do you see that? Where is David? MIA. He's back at the palace. He's neglecting his job to begin with, which says something to us, I think. There's that old, another old phrase, idle, an idle mind is the devil's playground. Have you heard that one before? And so here we see that with King David. The temptation comes on him because he's not doing his work, because he's not doing his duty. And in this passage, we see very quickly that the situation escalates backwards in the commandments order. It starts with covetousness, elevates to adultery, and culminates with murder. Do you see that? You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor shall you covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor, says Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the 10th commandment. And the Hebrew here for coveting is, coveting is the word hamad, hamad. To covet means what? We don't use that, that word very often today because it's a technical one, right? But if we put it in our common parlance, we might say desire. We might say crave. We might say lust. You shouldn't covet such things, says the Lord. You shouldn't. He's not saying, however, that we're not to covet anything. It's, he's saying that we're not to covet what is not properly ours in the commandment, right? So there are certain things you can covet. Covetousness is not wicked in and of itself, first of all, to define our terms, right? Sometimes you'll hear Christians say, I covet your prayers. I have heard that phrase before, which means I really desire, I crave your prayers. That's a good thing, right? Coveting, however, that's improper is coveting something contrary to your nature. That's wrong to begin with. So to covet something that's not properly yours by God's order is wrong. A man should not covet his wife's ability to have a baby, for example. 
That's not proper. It's not according to God's nature or the way God's created us. Nor should I covet an angel's ability to learn instantaneously, which would have been really helpful this week as I prepared the sermon in the midst of going to a retreat in Columbus. <laughs> it would be really nice to have you know, instant access to data. You know, God just zapped me with that sermon. Occasionally, he does give me words to speak, but usually not entire sermons. But I shouldn't covet that ability. Coveting can also be someone else's property, the most obvious one, right? I really want that car, or I really desire that house. But it can also be coveting. Coveting can also be wrong when we covet other people's relationships. It's interesting that the Tenth Commandment In the 10th commandment, the word used for house here also means family. Think about that for a minute. It's easy to think about coveting someone's brick and mortar house, but how many of us have ever coveted someone else's family? Boy, I wish I had that person's situation. Or the commandment goes on wife or servants. Coveting relationships of others is wrong, just like coveting property is wrong. People are not your possessions, and this commandment acknowledges that. They're not other people's possessions either, by the way, except when covenanted together in the covenant of holy matrimony. In fact, you don't covet things that belong to yourself, but... I'm sorry, I misread that. Wrongful coveting is tied and anchored in pride. It takes what begins with a morally neutral desire or ambition and then disregards all other considerations for that desire. It's a myopathy, a tunnel vision, right? I want that, I want that, I want that, I don't care. And coveting generally narrows and narrows and narrows until it becomes obsession. Perhaps you've seen that in your own life even. It doesn't have to be sexual. It can be other things too, right? Until you become obsessed with it. In his sermon on the subject, St. Augustine writes that covetousness is too easily swayed by greed. Covetousness is too easily swayed by greed. And so it's that greed that takes something that's properly coveted or takes a situation and pushes it over into the wicked, evil category. Of course, there's things that we shouldn't covet to begin with. That's a whole list in and of itself. But we can covet after good things and become so greedy and tunnel vision that we focus just on that. However, when paired with sexual desire, covetousness is called lust. And that's another translation of the word in the 10th commandment. Well, let's look at David together. Again, you don't have this in front of you, but if you have your Bibles, you can look at 2 Samuel chapter 11. What's going on in David's life that he's not at the front? Well, chapter 11 begins there saying, in the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle. You can look at that, but what you can't look at unless you have your Bibles is that what's happened is David is celebrating a great victory. David's armies have conquered the Syrians, and the armies are essentially doing a mop-up 
operation, we might say today, right? What's a mop-up operation? The big battle's over. The victory's all in hand. We're just kind of cleaning up the, the dregs, the ends, right? And that's what's going on here. There's this town, this fortified city of the Ammonites called Rabbah. But David remains behind in Jerusalem, leaving his general, Joab, and one of his mighty men, among the rest of his mighty men, Uriah, to lead the army as he stands back himself. Instead of leaving the army, he's hanging out up on his roof, lounging. And it's interesting, if you dig into this, this isn't like, like uh, the siesta time. This isn't the time, you know, the heat of the day. It's actually a time when he should be working. <laughs> so David is idle. The Bible tells us that he is looking, walking on the roof, the highest point in the city, and sees this woman, whom we learn to be Bathsheba, a woman of, who is very beautiful, Scripture says. Now, scholars will point out here that in the Hebrew, the word beautiful is not the usual word that's used for beautiful. It's one that's used particularly for things of the eye. So what this is saying is that David's not seeing this woman's whole beauty, right? He's not beholding her as the gift that she is, created by God as. He's seeing that she is hot, essentially. <laughs> if we were to put this in the modern vernacular, he's looking over the roof and he sees a hot woman. All right? If you were to translate that today. And what does he do? Well, scholars see that, that she's, he's focusing, or we see rather, that, she's, that he's focusing on this body image, on this beautifulness, and he covets her. Look at verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? After finding out that this is another man's wife, Uriah's, David doesn't check himself, does he? Does he say, oh, well, it's another man's wife. I probably shouldn't do that. No, he continues to covet. He takes the next step in coveting. And he, he sends multiple messages, messengers to her. And so there's no internal debate notice in that verse. It's like, boom, boom. Let that speak for itself. In the course of less than a verse, David lays with this woman. Do you see that? Look again at verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Again, boom, boom, boom. Right in a row. The seventh commandment is the next one we come to. You shall not commit adultery. This and the sixth are the shortest commandments in the Bible. If you look at the Hebrew, it's two words. No adultery. No stealing. God prohibits adultery here in this area and it's actually tied to stealing because, as W.L. Moran writes, this is the great sin of the ancient world. 
You know, all cultures have great sins, sins that are elevated above other sins, right? Like all sin is equal, of course, in God's eyes. Some sins hurt us more than others. But every culture has sins that were like, oh, yeah, that's a bad one. This is the ancient world's great sin, adultery, because it's not just about sex and sexual relations. It's actually about honor, too, and loyalty as well, and piety, too. That's why it's sometimes tied to adultery. Adultery, rather, is sometimes tied to idolatry, idolatry as well. And so this great sin destroys not only the person, but destroys the person's family. All sin does this, right? It's a great lie of American culture that your sin is private. There's no private sin. There's no such thing. No such thing. Sin ripples out from you and affects other people, no matter what. If nothing else, it changes your mind or your body, and you are a different person than you would be had you not sinned. And so all sin has a ripple effect. Uh, Commentator uh, Douglas Stewart writes, Husbands and wives can hardly function fully as one flesh if they do not trust each other. Sexual relations are the seal of a marriage covenant. And adultery betrays the emotional, psychological intimacy that specially connects adult men and women within marriage. There is, therefore, not just an act of disobedience to God here, but an act of treachery to the other person. If you doubt that, I can tell you stories about the fallout from adultery. It ripples out and hurts children, hurts the other person, hurts extended families. Of course, that's to say nothing about it hurting the wider culture. The story of David and Bathsheba bring that into this situation as well. When King David finds out that he's impregnated Bathsheba, he sends for Uriah, the soldier, to come home. And he tries to get him to go to his wife Bathsheba so that his sin will be what? Covered. Hidden. Look at verses 9 and 10. But Uriah slept at the door at the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and he did not go to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. The contrast here should be striking to you. Here you have David fooling around, lazing off, getting himself into sin, and you have Uriah, who won't even go sleep with his wife, because of his concern for his fellow soldiers in the field. He's still on duty. He's still on duty. And because of his concern for the Lord, the contrast is meant to be striking. And David tries to get him to go. Again and again, he does. Instead, next, he tries to get Uriah drunk enough to loosen up so that he'll go see Bathsheba. Again, 
to try to cover his sin, because remember, she's pregnant at this point. There's another part of the story that's also important, and that's that she was cleansing herself ceremonially as she was bathing. So what does that say? David's trapped, because if she's cleansing herself, she's had her period, and she hasn't known her husband since he's been away. The gates are closing in. Do you see what's going on here? David is trying to keep this hidden by whatever means possible, all because of his coveting. He'll ensure next that Uriah dies in battle. Look at verse 13, where we started. I'm sorry, verse 14, where we started. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was beseeching the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. David never lifts his hand to kill Uriah. And yet, David is charged with murder by God. The sixth commandment. You shall not murder. The Hebrew word behind this commandment means to murder, to kill, to bring down. But it's clear from the law that this is a prohibition not dealing with accidental killing or even death sentences, but, or even a killing on the battlefield that's not pre-orchestrated or premeditated. It has to deal with premeditated killing or murder. Jesus, Jesus points to this in Matthew 5 when he talks about being angry with malice, having a murderous heart against your brother. King David doesn't technically murder Uriah, as I've said, but he condemns him to die as, his, as in his position as king. And so God makes it clear that David deserves the death penalty and then some. If you look at the end of our passage today, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 9 through 12, we read this. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? I'm sorry, this isn't in your, in your passage. This is beyond it, I believe. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me, says the Lord, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do the thing before all Israel, before the sun. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house.
King David has sinned greatly in so many ways in today's story. And there's a great more that we could assess and tell about the ways that he's sinned against Bathsheba. But we don't have time this morning. But today, we'll limit ourselves to the chief three. Thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder. And we might think to ourselves, how could such a man of God, a man who the Bible says is after God's own heart, sin in such a way? But we better be careful in our condemnation of David, for we too stand condemned by God's standards. How many of you have ever coveted something owned by someone else? I can raise my hand multiple times. That really nice house, that fast boat, that really shiny car. How about your neighbor's high-paying job? But boy, it would be nice just to have that. And then we try to cover it up. Well, if only to care for my children better. Or if only to get my wife a nice fur coat or whatever, right? How about coveting someone else's position of power? If only I had that authority, I would do. How many of us have coveted someone else's relationship? This one starts out innocently, but quickly turns twisted. Number 10, directly, gets all of us, right? How about adultery? Raise your hands. You may not have physically slept with another woman, but according to Jesus, I guarantee you, you've all committed adultery. There's a reason when we say that Ten Commandments at the beginning of the service, we don't just omit some of them and say, well, I didn't do that one. All, to all of them, we say, Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep that law. You see, adultery is a lot more than just having sex outside of marriage. Jesus expands it in Matthew 5.27 and says, You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that's not exclusive to men, by the way. I don't think I'm going out on a limb when I say we can all raise our hand on that. The catechism continues on in it, talks about lewd speech. And that's actually tying to the epistle today, right? Dirty jokes, pornography, lustful thoughts. We all stand guilty. And finally, as I've already noted, while literal murder is probably not the sin in most of our pasts, if we expand it, we've committed that one too. Malice. Malice of the heart. Murderous rage. Hatred. Willful negligence, wanton recklessness, all of those are included as an expansion of the commandment prohibiting murder. St. John writes in his epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Full stop. If you know, and he continues, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Ugh. Okay, getting back to King David, this man after God's own heart, he deserves a death sentence. And so do we. 
The good news, of course, of the gospel today, of the woman caught in adultery, and even in David, is that Jesus Christ is the one sufficient sacrifice upon the cross for all time. How is it that David is saved? This great patriarch, this great sinner, he's saved by the cross of Christ, even though he came before it temporarily. How is it that the woman is saved, caught in adultery? She's saved by Jesus Christ, physically present before her, not telling her that what she did wasn't wrong, notice, but saying, neither then do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. Friends, do you see the good news in this? If you have any doubt, look at what St. Paul writes in the epistle today. He writes that we have been saved by Christ. Did you catch it? Let me underline it again today. I'll just read part of it. He says, therefore, be imitators of God, beloved children, as, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He gave himself up for you, dear friend, as a fragrant offering, as a sacrifice unto God. But then he continues. He doesn't stop there. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Not that you shouldn't do it, but you shouldn't even talk about it in, in, in a way that excites your desires. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving, rejoicing in what God has done for us. For he continues, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. But go on. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. So what's he saying here? That as Christians, while we stand guilty, deserved of sin, Christ has died as that one sacrifice and saved us from that sin when we repent and accept his forgiveness so that we can walk in the light, so that we can be lights to the world, dear friends. And part of being a light to the world is not standing to the world and saying, you've broken those commandments, you rotten people, and being holier than thou, but is saying, this is God's law, and there, but for the grace of God, go I. But here's the good news. Christ has died for me, and I've accepted his forgiveness, and he's died for you too. Come along. Leave that crap. Leave that dross. Leave that stuff that's not of God, and come along with me in the light of the cross. Friends, as we come to the end of this series. Understand, this is not to make us legalists. The reason we say the Ten Commandments every service and then once a month throughout the year 
is that we recognize that we're coming to the throne of God as broken. We're coming to the throne of God as people that can't keep the Ten Commandments. As coming to the people of God whose only hope as those who have been sentenced to death is in Christ's sacrifice. Take that to your heart. Dwell on it and walk in it. That you might be saints in light because he has made you so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.